All right, it's time for a little ad break. I got to tell you about HubSpot's HubSpot for Startups program. So if you're a startup and you're trying to grow, this thing is pretty great. You get a huge discount, 30 to 90% off on a tool that your whole sales and marketing team can use to help you scale as you grow. We use this in our companies. I think you should too. They have tons of resources. They got great customer support, tons of integration with popular apps that you use. You got to check it out. So it's the HubSpot for Startups program. You can check it out at HubSpot.com slash startups. This episode is brought to you by Superside. They're an always-on design company that delivers great design at scale, fast, affordably, and within 24 hours. Go to superside.com slash MFM, MFM as in my first million. So superside.com slash MFM to check them out. This is very casual, so... I don't even care. We're, we could record right now. It's recording now and we'll put that up. So this is very casual and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. And uh, if you don't want to answer something, just say it. But uh, Oh, I will. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's very casual. What's going on? You're uh, Randy, right? Yeah, that's me. So I, um, I'm a fan of your guys' product and typically I, I own it. I have my own, my own gym downstairs. I, uh, I do research on the businesses that we talk to and the people we talk to. But in this case, I didn't do too much research on purpose because I only have the product as a fan of the product's perspective. And I, and I wanted to come from that point of view. But do you, know, do you know what this podcast is and who we are or anything like that? Well, give me a little more background because, I mean, I've been, yeah. I've been doing a fair number of these since this crazy making period took off and it's hard to keep up with them. It was funny because, and I, I love to support, right? Because I do so much in the entrepreneurial community. I love to support young entrepreneurs. So I'm, I'm basically you know, taking pods that I normally wouldn't take just because it's, you know, we're here, we're home. And if I can support other guys that are getting stuff going, then I'm all about it. And what you said, you've been doing a lot since the making. What what what, what are you talking about? No, I said since this mayhem, right? Oh, oh, Corona thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a, a quite a lot of stuff in the press normally just to promote, you know, to promote my brand. But um, since we've all been locked at home, there's a massive proliferation of digital content in the form, you know, sometimes in the form of, uh, of video blogs and podcasts. And so I, in fact, I just got off another, another one with a, with a investment bank an industry panel basically, but it was just a call. So I, I, uh, I didn't have to be as pretty as I am now for you, Sam. Good. Well, you look great. So let me, we're going to, I'm going to give you a, the, the 20 second or the two minute background, and then we're going to make this all about you. But so I'm Sam Parr. I own this company called the hustle. Um, and what we do is I, I started it. We just turned four years, uh, like a, like two weeks ago. So typically we uh, have these conferences that where we host trade shows, conferences where we host tens of thousands of people each year, but we also have the hustle and the hustle is our daily email that goes out to millions of people. So millions of people log in and they get our news from us in their email inbox each morning. Um, And it's a great business. It's a eight figure, wonderful business that we've bootstrapped. And then we also have trends and trends.co. It's our subscription product. So we, uh, it's this premium content community, which is also a great business. So awesome. uh, And, uh, and we do this podcast as a, that I think, I forget how many listeners we have, but, uh, we've had millions, millions of listens, over a million listens. Um, and, uh, what this podcast kind of started as was me and Sean, my co-host who uh, isn't here right now, but we both have started companies and we 
always had these interesting brainstorms with people like you who were our friends and we would just riff on interesting ideas and on cool insights and most people don't have access to those types of people and so we just do this publicly and so that's what we're going to do today and so what i want to do right now is uh i want to learn a little bit about your background and uh kind of how you came to be where you are now and where you are now well uh where i am right now is in my house in uh, mill valley i'm sort of like uh, i i feel like rapunzel i spend all my time up in the tower above my garage right it's uh become my sort of everything from the sports marketing department or sponsorship marketing department of trx to the you know production studio for every one of our sort of uh you know blog interactions and that kind of thing but um you know i i so i'm the founder of TRX. Uh, I, I live in, in, uh, you know, Marin County. Um, prior to TRX, I was a Navy SEAL for 14 years and wow. uh, actually created the first harness while I was at the special missions unit. And then just decided, you know, after I left the SEAL teams, I went to business school at Stanford and decided while I was there uh, that this was a viable business concept, um, you know, which I think at the time I massively over overestimated how easy it would be because the product was so great. But um, but I used Stanford as basically an incubator second year as an incubator for this concept. And TRX is uh, I guess this is our 15th year in the market. Um, and, uh, you know, we're doing pretty well. We're, we're one of the the only truly global fitness brands. Um, and we you know, we've, we've put, uh, close to 350,000 training pros through our, our TRX coach qualification courses. And we're in about, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 70,000 gyms and studios around the world, most of which are closed right now, which is an interesting, you know, experience. But fortunately for TRX, we, we, we were for 10 years, all B2B, just serving athletes, training centers, clubs, trainers, uh, and, and boutique studios. And then about four or five years ago, now we decided, all right, we're ready to start to expand into the consumer, the true B2C consumer space. And, you know, it's good that we did that because obviously that side of our business, uh, in the COVID-19 environment is absolutely off the charts. The con commercial side of our business is really struggling because all the, all the gyms and all the trainers are all out of work. So uh, it's been a little bit of a tale of two cities over the last couple months, uh, but that's basically the snapshot of you know what TRX is, and uh, and I'm today I'm co-chairman uh, and really promoter in chief of the of the brand. Do you own the company, or have you guys been acquired or anything like that? Well, the the, the company is we have you know, I raised a long time ago. I mean, I raised a bunch of rounds of, of angel money when I started and then, uh, and then took on private equity, uh, back in 2012 and then recently recapped the business to exit those initial partners and bring in some new partners. Cause that's one of the, you know, the dirty little secrets about institutional capital is once you take it, it's very difficult to get rid of. So, uh, so it's a, you know, it's a private company, but it's co-owned by by a bunch of us, including the capital partners that that came in uh, in Got it. twenty at the end of twenty eighteen, beginning of twenty nineteen. How much did you raise from the angel folks? Well, in the way back, uh, I think I raised about oh, I have to think back to my around five million bucks from you know in several rounds of of angel money, um, 
And, uh, and that's great capital, right? For, I don't know, I don't know what the complexion of your viewership is, but you know, the, for the, folks that are thinking uh, about raising. Capital, yeah. Don't use, uh, you can use jargon. It's a very, uh, it's a very highly intelligent, not beginner audience. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean the, by far the highest, I mean, look, the cheapest source of, of money to grow a business is always what they call non-dilutive capital. Right. And, and that mostly in the form of sales, but, um, if you're going to take on dilutive capital, the I think by far the best source is uh, angel investors for a couple reasons. I mean, if uh, presuming you pick your angels the right way, um, because what you get in an angel investor, if you've chosen well, is you get somebody who has uh, a lot of domain relevant domain expertise because angels tend to invest in things that they know and think that one way or another they can contribute value to. Uh, if you pick the right angel, you'll get somebody who not only has domain expertise, but super passionate about your venture. Generally, angels are willing to, to invest on a common stock basis, which you know, uh, I strongly recommend to entrepreneurs that they stay away from preferred structures uh, up until they're ready to to sell a significant piece of their of their equity or exit altogether. Um, because once you once you you know once you bring in a preferred layer of equity into the cap stack, everything's different uh, in terms of the solidarity that you once had right across the team and the investors because that changes and and it's a you know it's it's a tough change uh, in the experience of most people that I know to manage. So, uh, so I'm a big fan of, of angel investors, uh, in which you get not only capital, right, but you end up getting pro bono experts effectively who are excited to be involved in, in your venture. How, uh, how big was the company when you sold it to PE or sold parts to PE? Well, it's been, you know, two rounds of that now, right? So, so the first, the first, uh, money we took, and I think we were around, I don't know, you know, 30 million, something like that. Uh, and annual revenue and annual revenue. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and, and who, who knows, you know, we'll be, we'll be North of, uh, you know, probably North of 60 somewhere. Who, who knows how far, because COVID is a uh, interesting experience, but, and we don't, you know, we don't really get into specifics cause we're a privately held company. So if you're heading that way, I'll just to redirect you. Well, so you already said it's the ballpark is 60 million. It could be way higher, but that's, a number that's been said. Um, a company like TRX, you guys, so we talked to a lot of like these direct-to-consumer folks, which you didn't start out as, but you are, definitely are now. But yeah. when I think of TRX, I think that you guys are in the same category as a CrossFit or, um, and this isn't an insult, but like Tony Horton, like you guys are like a brand, right? Like you're not just some Amazon, you're, you don't rank on Amazon and that's how you win. TRX is something that people know and uh, it's a brand. Do you think that your valuation is significant? Like, will your multiples be significantly higher because of that, you think? Or um, is it still rough to get a high valuation on products like this? Well, I mean, so for starters, I mean, we are, we are on it. We're the number one selling fitness item on Amazon. Um, yeah, but but I didn't mean like your way. Your path of success has not been like, well, we're just going to rank higher. Like it was just like people uh, love and know yeah. us. No, yeah, we built. I mean, look from day one, uh, this was never intended to to be a get get rich quick scheme, right? It wasn't a it wasn't a trend. I mean, I, it's funny because when I first started the business, there were no predecessors to the product that I brought to market. Right, our initial hero product, which was the suspension trainer. 
the the idea there seemed kind of crazy to bring this strap into the club landscape full of machines and think that you were going to be successful. Um, but one of the things that we did that was that was a really great choice, and I made plenty of less than great choices, but the one one of them that was a great choice was really finding this sweet spot in helping training pros of all kinds, right? From from chiropractors and physical therapists on one end out to to MMA coaches and powerlifting coaches on the other end. And then obviously, you know, and under the under the bell curve, you know, tons of personal trainers and group fitness instructors. Um, we decided we were going to become the part the business partner of them and that we were going to give them this great tool that had it's like I was described the suspension trainer like a magic wand, right? If if you if you know the magic, you can become a magician to your to your clients and your athletes and deliver them unbelievable results that always, you know, you look at a 12 feet of nylon webbing and go, yeah, well, what can that do? With the right pro and the right knowledge in that pro's head, you end up going, oh my God, this thing, I've never seen anything like this, right? And that's that's a unique characteristic that not many products or services ever have, which is you have people that come in with a very low expectation and leave with a very high level of astonishment. Um, and so that's been a, a powerful um, benefit to us. And then we diversified the 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 company's scope of operations we became you know the largest provider of professional education to trainers um, and then we broadened the product line significantly all the while focusing on this premium brand that you alluded to um, which I do believe brings you know an, an enhanced multiple the reality though is that long term if if all a, a company wants to be is a product company, Right, that delivers durable goods because our stuff lasts for freaking ever, um, you know, way too long. No, no, from- I've had the same one. Yeah. I've had the same one for four years. I, I got it was gifted on Christmas, and uh, I've had the same one for four years now. Yeah, I mean, and that's and you're in four years is nothing for a one on one, right? I I talk to people that are that are still traveling around using our like first gen strap from 2005 in their bag. You know, and and it's. I mean, on one hand, it's a compliment. On another, it's a nightmare, right? Which you need is, uh, what's it called? Plan planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, need, you need a break after like you know five thousand pushups. We never we never planned that because I I really wanted to be and I look I I, I came at this whole thing you know. I started my entrepreneurial career at 39, so after a career as a as a Navy, I you know, I had a set of values uh, that focused on premium level delivery. And if I was going to be associated with this brand, then that's what we were going to do. So we built everything that way. The unintended consequences, the one that you and I are beating around right now is that your stuff lasts forever. And it, which means that, you know, you either have to create more products to serve your existing customers, which is expensive, right? Because R&D is not cheap. Um, or you have to constantly be in search of new customers, which is not cheap. And so, you know, it's it's. I think that's why pure product co's get uh, what I would say, you know, unfair valuations relevant or relative to some of these faker, more fake companies that are, you know, tech-based uh, companies that have the potential not the promise, but the potential to scale infinitely, right? And so those kinds of companies tend to get higher valuations than gear companies. And that's that's just one of those realities. And it's part of what 
you know, we've never planned to be just a gear company. We we have always planned to, to expand our services so into subscription services first, and content, um, and, and that's what we've done. Right now, you guys make – what are your revenue streams? Your revenue streams are coming straight from – your revenue streams are purchases from coaches and things like that, or not, um, well, coaches and chiropractors and who like you know B two B people servicing clients, right? We make well, we're an omni-channel distributor, so you know on the on the commercial side of the business, uh, which is the B two B side, yeah, we sell the gym, we sell gear to gyms, yeah, but, and that's services. What, I ask about. what is education? Uh, education so sell- to gyms and trainers. Yeah. Yeah, so we do. So we we became early on. I mean, if you think back, nobody knew how to use a strap that didn't stretch and didn't have any weight attached to it. So if I was with you or one on one, I had almost a hundred percent close rate in the in the earliest days. Problem was, I can't be everywhere, right? So and if I wasn't with you and you were just looking at a picture of it, say on the website, the conversion would drop to you know, 5%. So that was something that I realized very early. All right, well, I have to be able to scale my knowledge on how to use this thing. And so I brought in uh, a guy who was introduced to me very, very early in the company's history, a guy named Fraser Quelch, who had been a career trainer and had written a lot of education in the form of courses for other pros, right? To teach other pros the various skills. I mean, how's a trainer or a coach learn his or her craft? They usually get a basic certification from a entry-level certification body like American Council on Exercise or, or NASM or NSCA. And then they go out into practice and they start developing practical skills. And along the way, they want to learn more about you know, a particular tool or a methodology or, and so they, they do, they have continuing education requirements, right? Just like a doctor or a lawyer, they have to, they have to do so many uh, continuing education units per year to maintain their basic certification. We became one of the leading providers of those CEC courses that, that help, help so a, charge them a new trainer or coach no. move uh, toward I, master. And that costs money. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our normal, our normal, we have about 10 courses of That's different so cheap, kinds, not and, $89 and our, all B2B and the, the, well, no, traditionally they were 295, right? So 295 bucks for a one day qualification course. And it was eight hours live in person. What you're probably seeing now is we've done some, some pretty incredible pivots with COVID-19 hitting and changing the landscape. Um, and so one of the things we did early on was try to figure out, Hey, all right, number one, we're not going to be able to provide education, right? As long as this thing lasts, because you can't get people together. Number two, most of the people who come to our courses are out of work. And so what, what, what can we do to support them was sort of idea number one. And then number two was how do we take this moment, which is really a bunch of lemons being thrown at us and make lemonade out of it. And we decided that, well, we can take our courses, we can make them free, figure out how to how to deliver them through Zoom instead of uh, live. And we'll do that as long as as this you know crisis continues. And we'll just try to fill our bucket with a whole bunch of new pros of all kinds of stripes, right, who on the other side of this will then appreciate that that we helped them out when they were down and also so that you guys have revenue the from selling the, the, so that's the, doing. the main product, the TR, the main TRX, which it looks like you have a few varieties, but I imagine most is from the main one. And then you make um, revenue from these hundred to 200, 
hundred to $300 B2B digital products. What, what's the breakdown is, is, is like, is, is the actual product 80% of sales? Oh, it's, you know, it's falling pretty, pretty fast as our, as the education. And now the, what, what's the big epiphany and the big unlock uh, that's gone on uh, over the last two months is that we massively accelerated our, what already was a migration toward digital delivery and subscription models. And so, you know, we've also got an app that, uh, that we make money off of. That's a four ninety five a month app that supports the end user. Um, and, and we, we have turned off the paywall on that during COVID, but that will go back on once everybody gets back to work. You know, we're really using COVID-19 as an opportunity to develop new, to solidify the relationships with our existing customers and, and bring new customers into the tribe through a free door that eventually, obviously, everybody knows that no business can keep their services free forever. But in the meantime, we're using it as, as a big opportunity to, you know, to build new relationships. So the the mix is is really changing. Well, what was the, mix the other thing pre-COVID? That, that I think you, you know you're not you know I mean it's probably probably seventy thirty between you know uh, uh, equipment, but you're defining equipment way too narrowly, right? You're looking at our hero products, which are the suspension trainers. We do the entire ecosystem of functional training. So from we have you know steel ecosystems that you built the infrastructure that. You know that not only do you hang straps on, but you fill with kettlebells, yeah, right. bands, balls, yeah, which I, which I, I've right? everything you would um, see in a gym. Do you have a sales the- team to handle that? Like, have, did you have to do like hand to hand combat for that, or uh, is is a lot of it inbound and oh, you're yeah. just fulfilling orders? Um, it's some of both, right? I mean, no, I don't think any business it, it certainly doesn't exist for very long as as all inbound flow, right? Generally, you have to be out. Well, there. Well, I guess I mean, but are you like running down the, ads to them, or you do know, you the have to have a sales force so, yeah. hitting the phone? And, and making that happen. Oh, both. Yeah, both. We advertise into the commercial sp- landscape through the traditional, you know, means to reach gym owners and trainers. But then we also have a, a pretty significant direct sales force uh, inside and outside that, I'm that look, does. I'm looking uh, at, um, I use this tool that guesses website sales. traffic. I, if I looking at this tool, I would imagine that your sales are like four X in April, what they were in February. Um, it looks like you guys are just like, like you, you, your web traffic has gone through the roof. Yeah, well, it certainly has. And the reason is I think less to do with anything we've changed, uh, in our marketing, than with the reality that, you know, as a 10 year B2B business, we we've put, you know, we, we serve tens of millions of people around the world who identify themselves as TRXers, but ironically had never bought a product for their home, right? Because they use us in a gym. And I run into people constantly. Some of my best friends, you know, will tell me like, oh, I've never bought, you know, they'll call me and be like, hey, can you give me a friends and family, you know, discount? And I'll be like, you don't have one of our straps. These are people that I know are diehard TRXers. And then they'll be like, well, no, man, I do it three times a week in the gym, you know? And so that, that was, that was a reality that comes with being a B2B business for 10 years. But what happened with the virus was when all the gym doors got shut, all of a sudden, all of those installed, that installed base of TRXers went, well, how the hell am I going to do my, do my workouts? And so they turned to our Amazon site and our website. And, you know, that's, that's been, I believe the 
the big source of you um, of the have the growth, the explosive growth of seeing uh, like consumer goods or well hard hard goods and digital products. So you, you're able to see uh, how they both work. And my from my perspective, and I've been a, an investor, and I have friends who sell direct to consumer hard goods, and then I also have a digital company, and I've invested in them as well. What my perspective is that the D2C guys can grow their revenue from zero to not zero very quickly, but there's massive supply chain headaches. Whereas digital, it's often the opposite, where it's maybe a little more challenging to get started, but the margins are way better and you never have a supply chain issue. What, uh, Knowing both sides of the business, which do you prefer? Well, I mean, I, I think that which do well, I prefer? I prefer which one's the that? one that's easier and makes more money. Um, you know, I think... That- yeah, well, the reality is that I think I think creating a digital uh, company, pure digital, is is hard because it's a very cluttered field, right? It's a uh, it's there's especially now. I mean, this this virus has unleashed the digital universe, right? And so now, just like any other marketplace, there's going to be this explosion of of would be uh, you know participants, and then there will be a consolidation. And, and some of the, you know, they'll separate sort of the wheat from the chaff. And I think that um, we're in a really unique position because we started as a physical products company. Then we became an education company, education and content, right? Because we made, I mean, hell, we probably did 35 DVDs prior to DVDs becoming disintermediated by digital delivery. We've obviously taken all that content and repurposed it into our digital ecosystems. But then we we became a brand, like a, a, a really significant premium brand in the space. And then we stretched that brand around the world. So now we're in a really unique position because we have the best of both worlds, right? We have a, a large customer base that bought our physical gear and that then came to cl- group classes in clubs around the world that we helped develop and and educate the instructors who are delivering those. So they got comfortable and identified with our brand. And then as we've done more and more consumer branding, we've extended that brand from the, the pro space, which is great from a credibility standpoint, because if trainers and physical therapists love you, the consumer at home tends to go, oh, well, these guys must be, you know, a quality operation. And so now we're in a really unique position. Now we're turning on some new digital engines, some subscription uh, engines that give us the best of it all, right? We're, we, we will have our products, which you're right, you stock out of. I mean, we're, you know, we've stocked out over and over and over during this thing because no one plans for a you know, multi-time step function <laughs> change in the demand curve, right? And you, you you scramble to try to catch up to it. And I think a lot of us will find ourselves just about the time we're, we're caught up and we've got this, you know, whole new uh, stockyard full of products. Yeah, scary. Maybe the demand will settle down a little bit and we'll end up with more products. Yeah. And it's, but that's just, that's part of being a physical product. So, well, that's my question. Know, which, which one uh, do you find supplier? Which one do you personally is, is, enjoy more? both in terms of working on and the results? I'm a, uh, I mean, I'm an inventor, you know, so, so that is part of my, like, it's, it's a, it's probably what maybe want to go into the Navy SEAL teams. I, I have a MacGyver bent to me and I came up with an old man that can fix literally anything with almost nothing. And so I, I sort of grew up, you know, out in the garage until, you know, the middle of the night holding a flashlight for my old man while he was, you know, jerry-rigging some kind 
All right, this episode is brought to you by Superside. All right, so here's the deal. I'm incredibly impatient, like horribly, horribly impatient. And if I get an idea at midnight, by 8 a.m. the next day, I want it done. Um, you know, but that's really hard because if something needs to be designed, where am I going to find a designer at midnight to try to make this thing bring it to life? Um, so, you know, I don't think I'm alone. Other startups, even huge companies need design help fast and they just don't have the internal resources or expertise to get it done. So how do you get res- reliable design done without dealing with expensive agencies and lots of freelancers? You use Superside. That's our sponsor for this week. Just go to superside.com MFM and tell them what you want. They have a team of designers that can get it done fast. You know, they are 20 times faster than hiring, you know, hiring a designer and 50% more affordable than a traditional agency. So if you need high quality design done fast, try Superside. Lots of fast growing teams that are stretched are using them already. Check them out. Superside.com slash MFM. I've used them before. I love them. Check it out. Kind of a, uh, of, of a fix to, to an old motor or to whatever. It could be anything. So I really enjoy the process of product creation. Um, and I spend a lot of time and energy at TRX um, developing our next products. I also, though, appreciate and enjoy creating great content, whether it's in the form of pro education or whether it's in the form of, of end user content, you know, workout content. Um, and so I, I would say I like both. I like the economics of the digital side of the equation for the reasons that you've pointed out, right? You don't stock out of it and you don't... Uh, it scales infinitely, but I don't think that it's an easy business to just say, oh, I'm going to become a digital content publisher and I'm going to, you know, make a billion dollars. Yeah. Like you and the other billion would be digital content producers that are out there all right on the same path. And so, so I, 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 I like them both. Um, I like the multiple. So I'm going to ask you about some digital uh, content and subscriptions. And I'm going to ask you about, you about um, interesting ideas that you're seeing and new opportunities. But first, you said something that you're the chairman, right? So does that mean you're not the CEO? Yeah, I'm. Well, we brought in a a president. Um, you know, I've I've tried a number of times to get out of the day day in day out uh, management of the organization because a couple reasons. One, at this point, you know, I mean, number one, there's one founder. Right. And so you've got a certain amount of of founder cachet that is really valuable in working with the press in working with key accounts. Right. In in generating love around the brand that there aren't others who can do that. Um, There are others who can manage the steady state sort of linear growth of a, you know, of a of a midsize and, and growing company. In fact, there's those that can do that better than me because I'm more of a startup guy. So I've tried, you know, several times over the last call it six years to, to get more out into the market and less in the conference room. Um, and, you know, we hired a president uh, about eight months ago who uh, he and I've been doing a transition where I can, you know, basically hand most of the day in day out over to him and to, you know, to the, to the team. And then with our new partners, uh, they're very good at the financial engineering side of the equation. So I'm not right. That ain't, I mean, that is just not something that turns me on. I, I like the outcome, but the process is just not something that, you know, floats my boat and everybody's, everybody's cut of different cloth. So what I'm really focusing my energy on is, uh, promoting the brand, developing new products and, 
and looking at new initiatives, right? That's something that I'm um, very good at and passionate about is sort of trying to see. We're very similar. So I've done the same thing. What, what the next opportunity um, is going to be. Who handles a lot of stuff. And I do the exact same thing where I can lead vision, but I also come at the very bottom and I can just change pixels and, and invent. I do it digitally, but the same exact crap where I'm just, I have my computer up late at night and I'm just making stuff. And most of it sucks, but every once in a while I'll show it to someone and they're like, Oh yeah, let's go make that. Uh, <laughs> That's the product creation dilemma, right? Most of it, most of it goes nowhere, but, but about every 10, you know, every, every 10th effort, you go, ah, oh, wait a minute, there's something to this one, right? And that's, you know, and that's, you, you got to be wired to not get frustrated by that. Just like, you know, just like folks who like to manage at that mid-level, they don't like the the scariness and the ambiguity and the, you know, the vagaries of of the startup uh, or creator. They like the the consistent predictability of, you know, weekly staff meetings and a checklist and all the things that make me sort of well this you know, is and this is a consistent pattern that we see I, don't I feel like woman man, this Sophia is Amoroso, not where I but be. she had this company so, called Nasty Gal and it scaled to I forget the exact number 1 or 200 million a year in sales and had multiple offers around half a billion and it they they she screwed it up for a bunch of reasons one of the biggest ones is she was like I'm a, I'm brilliant at creating I'm horrible at operating and um, I, uh, I too am like that, where I'm brilliant at creating, uh, but operating, I just don't find it to be exciting. And I think that most people who start stuff are the same way. But I think there's actually a huge issue. And you're in Silicon Valley, although you may or may not run in the Silicon Valley crew, particularly amongst that group of people, I've noticed there's a huge problem of people starting stuff who are afraid to hire people to actually run the thing. Um, and what I've really embraced, and it took years to learn this, is that there's actually people who like creating the car from scratch and designing it. And then there's people who love modding it out and making it better. Um, and, and having both is really important. How did you hire your president? And what was that like going through that process? And also, how many mistakes have you made in hiring the wrong people? Because that sucks too. Plenty. Yeah, plenty. I mean, I mean, look, first of all, so I, I operated the company you know, every single day for its first 10 years, that's a long time. Right. And at that point, when you're, when the, the engine of both creation, well, why didn't you do that earlier? And management, that's like dog's years. Right. Well, I think, uh, I think that a couple of reasons, one, I did try a couple of times, right. Starting around year, maybe around year eight to, to bring in, you know, a president. The, my idea was always I'll bring in a president and I never had, I never took a CEO title for years because I just thought it was sort of ostentatious for a little company to have a CEO. That was my personal opinion. So I was the president. So when I, I brought in a president, um, and uh, the first one that I brought in, it really co uh, aligned with bringing in private equity. Oh, why'd you right? so wait eight was, years? Like, why not was, in year three? Yeah, about year I mean, ten. Um, well, because we were still very much evolving, right? And I think that one of the challenges with bringing in somebody to take over the the daily management is you have to be pretty well defined about where you're headed. Um, as an entrepreneur before you can now hand the wheel to somebody, right? If you're wheeling right, wheeling left, that's not exactly the moment to be like, hey, buddy, here, take this, right? Because then the guy's like, well, where do I drive, man? So so I think that's the answer. The short answer is I wasn't ready yet in terms of our, our definition to uh, and, and the, the 
enough certainty to the general direction of our course to want to hand that over. But at about year eight, I was, and I said, okay. So I handed it over the first, probably the first two uh, presidents that I hired, which are both great guys. But the mistake that that I made, uh, largely from being from listening to my then private equity partners that you know had had sort of their their business school one on one playbook they were trying to run, which is go hire kill me a, kill me a quote unquote best practice president kill me well okay what are, yeah so you're gonna hear, yeah I'm sure I was just gonna say I'm sure you're gonna you're, you're gonna be hearing something familiar here right which is that a lot of the institutional capital investors they 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 haven't run businesses themselves so they want to execute what they learned in business school, which is, you know, the idea of best practice. Well, what is best practice? That's the problem, right? And and generally they will say, oh, it's someone from the upper mid levels of a great big successful company that we've all heard of. What I've learned, and it took me two two go rounds to learn this, by the way, totally. is that that is almost a disqualifier. I need a guy with an MBA telling me what to do. Like, I need a, a fucking hole in the head. Company, I don't right? like like what like oh my god i so i i've had a yeah, i've got lucky right. i've had a lot of great success we have a guy uh adam ryan who's our president and i've known him since high school i'm from missouri so i'm not from like this fancy san francisco stuff like i live now and that was awesome because adam has wonderful at being scrappy and things like this but he also can be like a big company suit if you wanted to and what i found is and i've hired some mbas and it didn't work out what i found is these gray hair they're not actually gray hair but it's more figurative these best practices this bullshit they just these people can't roll with the punches and i i've never had success with that type of i've i've hired i have a few businesses on this like little investments i've made and we've hired ceos who were like this and it just man it never works and you, but you think that it should yeah well it's it's a little exactly. bit akin to trying to get a cat to bark right. cats meow dogs bark so saying that well you know either one of them should be able to to do this thing is just not right and you wouldn't do it because it would be preposterous and yet what people do all the time, especially institutional investors make this mistake, is they assume that because somebody operated at a scale, right, at a successful brand, that, well, that person clearly can, this will be easy for that person. And it, it's it's almost the reciprocal because what, what they don't realize or haven't thought through is those people are, are playing a different game. Like Michael Jordan was, you know, arguably the best basketball player in history. When he went over to the Major League Baseball, right, he hit with a thud. Why? Yeah. He's a great athlete. He's playing a different sport. So, so what worked for him in, on the basketball court, you know, doesn't work when you're on the mound of a baseball diamond. And and so I think it's the very similar thing. Big company, big company leaders have large staffs, generally a lot of certainty in the direction that they're heading. You know. Uh, kind of single digit uh, management objectives right up or down it's 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 yeah, a, you're a almost more like a politician you're, you're a politician a little bit decision you're not. making process so it's like right. yeah and that's the antithesis of a small company right a small company and by that i mean anything south of 100 million bucks is it's constantly pivoting and and the 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 windows to make those pivots are not you know years they're not even quarters you know you're lucky if they're months and so though I think the difference in the operating cadence and style is 
profound. And just going to a big company, a successful big company manager, and thinking they're going to be successful as a small yeah, company I think that look president. When, when, once um, once it, my business almost never a financial out. arbitrage machine, and I need someone to figure out how to milk out three percent off the bottom line by using less materials, then I'm going to get one of those nerds. But until then, I need innovative people who understand how to be. It's yeah. a perfect balance of art and science. Who understand like financial analysis and things like that, but who also can understand what motivates buyers and who can think of widgets that uh you know make people feel good and want to purchase and be it's just i've been to this um i so i i empathize um you uh are you investing in anything at the moment or is 100 percent of your time on this or like on saturdays and sundays are you tinkering with anything totally outside of uh this field what interests you right now perpetually yes yeah, I'm well, I mean, there's a lot of different things that interest me. I'm, you know, I, I'm an angel investor in a bunch of different uh, enterprises, both inside and outside of health and fitness. Um, and I because I'm a super, you know, I'm a startup nerd. So I I live and breathe, you know, that and I teach I teach classes at both my alma maters at, at the Marshall school at USC. Dude, you're badass. So you're a business at Stanford. So I get to see a ton academic. of young. You're pretty. Well, I, I, I'd have to put that in I'm quotes. Right, I mean, you, Sam, hey, I'm not you, sure dude, that I would, that I would put academic. But I'm a lecturer, right? Not a professor. So, so that means that all you had to do, all you had to do was have gone you're there just, and then have done something that didn't subsequently. You can kick someone's ass, but then also like, you know, talk to them about Aristotle and like Britain's economic policy and how it impacted imperialism in the 1960s. I'm an, I'm an eclectic dude. You got that part right, right? I'm an eclectic dude. And I'm I'm a super geeky inventor, you know, which which I love. I mean, I've got like 40 patents that I didn't, I care less about the patents. What I cared about was the thing, right? Like bringing the thing to life. And then once you do, particularly in today's digital economy, right? You got to protect it because if you don't, you'll be knocked off and blown out of, you know, blown into oblivion uh, almost immediately with factory direct stores out of China that have FBA shops on Amazon now. So, you know, so that's why I became, you know, like I, I joke about having a minor PhD in intellectual property law that I never wanted, um, but I had to learn. And so all of that, like all the nuts and bolts of creating and then, you know, articulating a vision and and wrangling a team to 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 share that vision and then moving that thing forward. What are your That's best the stuff um, that, that makes my you know, my heart pound? Well, I mean, I, I suppose we'll wait and see out, yeah. until they uh, until they they pan out. But you know, I've got uh, no, not yet. I've I'm sort of an equity investor, right? I'm I'm you know I, I make a good living now, and and uh, so I'm not you know I'm not. I'm not in any of these for a quick turn, but I think that they all will. Um, and, you know, most of them are in areas that I that I, I I tend to to both invest and advise only in things that I think I can make a difference in. I've taken a couple of of different flyers on on things that, you know, buddies that I trust and are domain experts in other areas have said, hey, man, you should get in on this, you know, but I'm a, and, and also let's just qualify this. I'm a small, you know, investor. I'll, I'm not, I'm not placing six figure investments one after another, but I, but I, I tend to invest, um, 
in things where I can help the the operating team based on my own experience, right? And and really experience is just the sum of all your mistakes as much as anything else. And so I, you know, I can help uh, early stage businesses set up their their partnership arrangements, right? Figure out what makes a good partner, figure out what capital sources that make the most sense for them are, because I know both the pros and the cons of all of them at this point. Um, and then, you know, team selection. That's, I mean, I've been leading teams since I was, you know, 22 year old frogman and um, led all the way up to, you know, the national level. And so I've, I've got a lot of experience, whether I've done it all right, I certainly haven't, but, but I haven't done it all wrong either. Um, but I've got a lot of experience in, in helping, you know, build culture, uh, create team dynamics that are that are durable and and um, performance oriented, and build um, brands. So I if it's in those categories, the that's really kind of my wheelhouse. <laughs> are you uh, uh, an MMA man, fan? Nature, nature. So I'm a huge MMA fan, and I uh, this quarantine thing. Yeah, big time. I've gotten very healthy, much health. Like I've done Ironmans and things like that, but I've like actually started using my TRX, by the way, and. Lifting, lifting weights and I've gotten strong, but I uh, I have a weight loss challenge and I have $500 on, on the line and I have to hit it by Saturday. And I have, I'm going to crush it just through diet and exercise, but I've began just, I'm drinking like crazy amounts of water because I want to do like a MMA weight cut and just like destroy the, 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 the benchmark that I've got to. Yeah. And so I'm, uh, I'm currently drinking three the gallons of water a day and then tomorrow <laughs> and the next day I'm going to taper down. I just, I just I, my goal is just to crush everyone. Um, <laughs> what? A... That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've been, I've been an MMA fan since before there was MMA because you know coming up in the SEAL teams, right? You do a. It was very eclectic in terms of the 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 coaches that we would bring in. So I I was a you know I've been the the full gamut. I was I was an MMA guy before MMA was termed. Right. Everybody was still purists in their arts, but because I had this Bedouin lifestyle of constantly deploying and coming back, I didn't have that luxury. So I became, you know, I'd been a kickboxer and, and a wrestler in high school, kickboxer through college, then uh, then I uh, got into jiu-jitsu at the end of college and and leaned into that, you know, hard in as a SEAL. But it was never, I never had the luxury of being in one place for more than a couple of years at a time. And, um, and so, but I've been a huge fan of, of, uh, we did a ton of sponsorship actually of the fighters in the UFC prior to Reebok buying the, you know, the global rights, uh, to, to, uh, the sponsorship placements. Um, so yeah, I, I, in fact, Mike well, Dolce so could, um, could help you with your, you know, with your weight uh, cut, you know right? He's, he's a freaking is? master at that stuff. I've become friends with Ben through this podcast and media. And so he's sure. been helping me out and I'm name dropping a little, but I'm, I'm a, I was a huge fan of his. And then I started talking to him. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm friends with someone I looked up to. And then I think we're having Michael Bisping come on and do a podcast as well. Um, yeah. Both of those are great, man. I mean, uh, Askren's a stud wrestler and Bisping's just, you know, you talk about one of the veterans of the, of the sport. I was so happy when, you know, when he finally got to the mountaintop after all those years of grinding, fighting, everybody that you know that was that was there to be fought and he just kept sort of somehow falling just so you, short um, but he finally got there before you know about all this so stuff I was stoked and for him. sometimes whenever i talk about like mma and ufc i'm like i think i'm being too niche right now no one cares i think it's way bigger than i actually realize um but when you were in the seals 
this the seal thing interests me for two reasons one jocko will is it willick willink that guy's everywhere right now so and he's always fun he's got good yeah, clips sure. that are willink. fun to watch and then i'm also reading david goggins book can't hurt me um it randomly came up on my audible thing and uh i started listening to it yeah. it's it's emotional it's sad it's hard to listen to have you have you heard it or read it i haven't no i mean i know i know david um he and i did never work together but i you know you cross paths same thing with jocko those guys are those guys are both way behind me in terms of age but the and so in the seal teams you know if if somebody's more than a couple of years ahead or behind you the the likelihood of you knowing him is possible but not high unless you worked at the same places right in which case then you then you transcend the age barriers because you're all you know at a at a command together and you 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 work together and i never worked with either one of those guys in fact i think as i was getting out they were both coming in um but I certainly know, you know, of both of them. And I, I like what, what they've both done with their brands. And, you know, uh, Jocko's done some really, really cool stuff uh, with his podcast and, and his other appearances. Oh, in fact, I he popped up the other day on, on uh, Billions, which I, I was laughing about. He, he, he uh, yeah. So this new, the new season, he's, he popped up in that. And I, I was like, yeah, man, yeah. that's what I, I love it when I see other frogs doing doing good stuff um, versus doing stupid shit where they're out there, you know, telling and selling secrets that are going to, you know, put other guys at risk, which I do not admire. But I but I really love when I see guys out there doing great things post career, because that's what the whole country is supposed to be predicated on. Right. It's the citizen soldier. You come in, you serve for however long you try to serve as well as you can. And then you go on and do something, uh, something else cool out in the civilian community and be able to share some of the things you so learn. I, I, I love that Jocko does I, that. And I love that Dave's I does, was doing like, that as well. Like you were, I'm just like, I like to invent things and I like selling them and I like making money. Um, what I didn't, well, what I, I I always did track and field and running and weightlifting and swimming and those are all individual sports and what I really struggled with early on was how to be a leader. Um, it's super hard because you like for a lot of people they start stuff because uh, it's like I said it's fun and it makes money and it's cool. They don't but then they like if it was successful then they're like oh I got to be like a leader of men and women not necessarily a creator of products. What do you think? Do you think that? I mean, I know the answer. The answer is definitely yes. But what specifically helped being in the SEALs in terms of business leadership and managing a team? And, and by the way, how many people do you have? Oh, we've got about a hundred full timers, and then we we uh, you know we use another three hundred and fifty master instructors to do, to deliver our education courses. So they're ten ninety nines. But you know, so it. 100 full-time plus or minus and do you think people you know, would say you're a good manager that and we, that we employ as contractors a good leader i think they'd probably say i'm a better leader than i am a manager right that's that would be my guess because it maps to uh i mean i can manage and i the distinction between that yes. to me is uh quite a wide gap right there are there are people i think who can do both at a very high level but not many because the 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 I believe that most of the characteristics that make someone really good at one or the other almost uh, prevent you from being good at both. I mean, there are some extraordinary people, I think, out there that can do both. But but management requires just a a different level of you know attention to 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 minutia. I won't just say detail because I'm very detail oriented, but ongoing minutia, which is important in making a business go. Um, you know, I don't have the patience for it. And I also, you know, I never, 
I, I never really liked corporate management. I, I like leadership a lot. And leadership's about storytelling, being authentic, motivating and communicating. You seem very charismatic. Um, Do you think you're a good leader? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the strengths that what are some I have things developed I can largely learn as, then as a result of my experience, experience with SEAL teams. Uh, and that uh, our listeners can learn, you think? Well, I mean, we do, you know, so I do I do a key, I do a keynote that is pretty massively oversubscribed, frankly, called Lessons of a Frogman. And it's leadership lessons, I, business leadership lessons that I learned as a SEAL, which turns out almost all of the key lessons that I know, I actually learned as a SEAL. The leadership lessons, not necessarily the tactical business lessons, but um, and and you know you would think, and I actually had one of the assistant deans at Stanford Business School when I was out interviewing for to 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 be accepted there, you know, give me this sort of patronizing, put his shoulder hand on my shoulder, and basically said, "Well, then you know, why do you want to, Why do you think we should take you, Randy?" And I talked about you know my leadership experience. Uh, you know, I was at that point, I was at the special missions unit as a as a troop commander. And had been in the SEAL teams for, you know, I don't know, 10 years or so. And, you know, then he put his hand on my shoulder and said, well, then uh, it's it's a bit different leading in the real world than it is in the military. Don't 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 you think because out here you can't just tug on your collar device and have everyone snap to and do what you say. And I'll never I was so astonished, man. I was like, is this guy for real right now or is he baiting me? And, and I basically said to him, you know, uh, Dean, if that's your view on military leadership, then I think it says a lot more about how little you know than it does about the subject of leadership. And, you know, not surprisingly, I didn't get in that time. But, uh, but, but you know, I think that if you're talking about people and groups of people, there are many, many more commonalities to how to lead and motivate the group then there are differences depending on, you know, like irrespective of domain, because you're talking about anthropological behavior and that changes very slowly over millennia, you know, and whether you're a, you know, a baker or a freaking frontline soldier or a software developer, if you're dealing with other people, humans behave, you know, largely the same way. They have different microcultures, but but we're all part of the Homo sapiens species, and we we've evolved our behaviors uh, over you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years. So the commonalities are that people want to be inspired. They want to be. They want to associate with something they believe in, and other people who share that belief system. They want to feel important. Right. Like they're contributing. Everyone wants approval and and reinforcement that what we're doing is is good. Um, and so figuring out how in, in in a context to provide those basic human needs is what leadership's all about. And and I, I think that it's it's not actually very domain specific, uh, whereas management arguably is much more domain specific. Right. Depending on the industry and. And I think that requires, you know, a, a different set of skills. And very often the things that make someone a good manager prevent them from wanting to be on the podium, prevent them from wanting to take risks. Right. And and those are things that, you know, you can't lead anybody if you're not willing to get on point. And and, and so I think that, you know, man, leading and that managing are, are related. If I Google that, can thing. I watch it? I hope not, because it's one of the uh, it's, it's one of the, you know, the side hustles that, that I enjoy doing. Um, I actually, it's, you know, obviously I haven't been doing them during COVID-19, but, um, 
but I'm I'm working on a couple of books in the early stages. One of them is is going to be that. It's going to be the a deeper look into the substance of my you know keynotes that I do for corporations. Um, the other is is going to be an entrepreneur survival guide because what I discovered right is that the gap between what I learned at Stanford Business School and the stuff I actually needed the day I launched this scrappy little strap startup couldn't have been wider. Right. And, and that's at one of the best business schools in the world. But what it what those business schools really prepare you to do is enter as a mid-level manager into a large organization. Very few of them prepare you to be a bootstrape entrepreneur. Right. That needs to walk out and figure out how to how to find some space, how to get pesky little things like insurance. You know, when you when you start thinking about somebody that you're going to partner with, what's that all about? You know, how do you go about the the nuts and bolts of raising money without screwing yourself, you know, there and ever after all that stuff, you don't really so, get in business school. You, you no, get I that agree. By and out we're going to be wrapping up soon. So you I want to um, ask you just, I, I wanted to wrap up the questions on angel investing. Any companies that you've written checks to that we would know about? Well, I mean, I can tell you a couple of ones that I'm super excited about right now. Um, there's, there's one of my, ironically, one of my board members, um, uh, started a company called Basil Street Cafe, which is a really cool automated pizza kitchen concept that I think uh, COVID-19 has has actually now made more viable even than before. But it's a, a really sophisticated combination of technology, branding, and distribution to create a, a, a nationwide initially and then global um, uh, automated pizza kitchen. And and that produces some of the most kick-ass pizza that I've ever had in my life, which is really astonishing because your expectations out of a machine are very low. And it turns out it's well, every so, bit as so good or better than Blaze or any restaurant quality pizza. So better, that's one that uh, – A better run at it than those guys. I think sometimes, you know, like there are things that – that you know were a great idea, but were ahead of their time. And I think some of the some of the plays that have attempted to do this before uh, had an interesting idea, but the technology they didn't get right. And you know, and it, and it's largely a distribution business as well because you have to make great great pizza and be able to you know keep the keep the machine stocked with it. And so it's a. But I'm excited about that one. Um, you know, I've got another buddy that that I'm helping that uh, has a company called Everance, which I think is a really cool, um, you know, opposite end of the spectrum in a lot of in a lot of respects. It's it's basically a very unique way to to collect, capture, and then encapsulate. Uh, can be anything, but the idea is hair. Ash could be any kind of material, you know, from a, a flower from, you know, the mountaintop where you got married or buried your grandmother or whatever, and then enables that to then be put into either jewelry, right, that that you now have. For instance, I'm having some stuff done right now that I'll have my boys you know, locks of their hair encapsulated and put you, into uh, it's like a when, bracelet. Uh, it's like when right, Billy Bob Thornton and Jolie had and so, the blood. And then, did you ever read about that? They're fucking weirdos, but they, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a little creepier than I, than I, you know, than I'm in. But the other thing they do that's really interesting, you either choose uh, to put it into jewelry or into tattoos. So for everybody who has tattoos and wants that's to great. describe a little more meaning, to them, right? It's it's kind of a cool thing to be able to to cut a, a lock of you know everything from your dog's hair to your kid's hair or a cheek call? swab, 
and you send it off to them and they've got this patented unique process of putting it into, into what, you, what it? you know, a keepsake, basically a permanent keepsake, whether it's jewelry or a tattoo. Uh, Everence, E-V-E-R-E-N-C-E. I think uh, their, their website is Everence.life. But yeah, there's a couple, you know, and, I, and, and then I'm, I'm involved in a, in a technology company and LiDAR Radar called Luminar, which is a cool, a cool company. And that's one of the example of one of those that, all right, not exactly in my wheelhouse, right? Not an area that I can necessarily add value to, but, uh, you know, very exciting. And another friend who pays a lot closer attention to that space, you know, put it in front of me and it, it just made sense. It's, it's uh, you know, one of the companies that's out there uh, vying for supremacy in the self-driven like automobile that category, uh, category and that you're starting a company in there, and, uh, I would just invest in there just because it's like, eh, probably, maybe. <laughs> right. It's kind of in that category. And then you look at the, you look at the, you know, the leaders and go, well, those people are really smart people. This is a, this is a sector. Someone's going to win in probably more than one. So, you know, reasonable. And again, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, 20 to 50 K investor in any given one thing. I'm not taking huge exposed positions. Usually I like to invest in things where, you know, I, I can help based on my experience as a brander, as an entrepreneur, you know, some government stuff that I've gotten involved with, because obviously I spent a long time in, you know, in the, in the government space. Um, but, uh, and then just some cool companies, right? There's cool companies that I'm trying to help right now, like Indie.com is an awesome new platform to help influencers monetize their followings, right? With content. And um, I'm a big believer in that space. And it's, and it's an area where I can help them by exposing them to our large installed base of trainers, um, who all of whom are influencers in their own right, and trying to figure out how to scale themselves, right, and create new sort of passive streams of income. So, you know, it's a smattering, right? And and there's were you, you know, able a handful to of others that are kind of in the same from the first same category event in order to make these investments. The first one, no, I I should have, right? And that's one of the, I mean, one of the big lessons for anybody who's listening. And I really believe this. Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't hear it, or or if I heard it, I didn't listen the first time I heard it. Um, but I really think for entrepreneurs, you, you really should not. With in, I'm speaking generally because there are exceptions to every, you know, every generality. But in general, I don't think entrepreneurs should take institutional capital without pulling a significant uh, piece off the table. It just you know, from the time that you do and you introduce a preferred class of what, shares, what, what was your, what would be your, your definition stack, of significant? A million, change, five million, right? five hundred thousand. Well, I think it depends on the venture. I, I, I would view, um, I would view it from where I sit now as, you know, if if you were building and then running a successful company that, and you thought that the only option for financing was to go raise it from institutions. I'd sell at least a third, you know, of, of my holding, um, to, to bring those people in enough, basically enough to be okay. If things go differently than you expected that, that would be, so you had a wait, but you had a wait know, the rule the of thumb to, an, to make answer. Um, so that, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, you know, I probably could have sold more at the first stop, but I, I was very bullish and very, um, you know, as entrepreneurs need to be. And I thought, hey, this is, you know, I'm not selling anything right now. 
Um, and that, you know, that was a big mistake that when I look back on it later on, you don't realize, hey, you could be locked up with these guys for a long time, right? And once they're in front of you, then getting any kind of liquidity becomes really problematic. So, you know, that's just something that entrepreneurs need to keep in mind. And, you know, you could you could lose control, obviously, if you sell control, but there are other ways where, you know, through the preferences that institutional uh, investors tend to get into term sheets where your autonomy and your ability to drive the bus. And you didn't have the ability, the and we'll wrap this up in a second. You didn't have the ability to expect. take a couple million bucks, take a million dollars off the profit each year to pay yourself. I mean, so like you were just strictly earning a, a, a low salary as the company grew, or were you able to like, because if you raised 5 million bucks right out the gate, I would imagine you wouldn't even have had the ability to say like, well, this year we made 3 million in profit. I'm going to write myself a $700,000 check. No, of course not. And, and you don't, you know, and that's not, frankly, that's, I mean, that's, that's a tough way for an early stage entrepreneur to even think, because if you're starting to think about trying to extract stuff out of an early stage business, chances are you're going to impair that business's growth. And so my, my view was never of that. I mean, I wanted to start making money, right? Because the first, if you count, you know, two years of business school where I was where I was working on this idea, I went the first that those two years plus the next three without any pay. Right. So I was five right. years. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, but you were like 10 years in before a you no pay environment, right? Basically. The, so it's like by that point, we were doing okay, a little less like, maybe nine years in. Um, I can definitely treat myself a little. And I should I should have taken money off the table then. That was one of the mistakes. Right. Because what, what I focused on instead was, hey, I want you know, to up my, up my, my salary, right. And my bonus structure to a point at which I can start making, you know, a, a good living on an annual basis. Um, but I should have, I should have done both, right. Because that, that was possible. And I chose to just focus on, all right, let's get my cash comp up to a, up to a level that feels right for, you know, what I've built in the hundred hours a week that I'm working and not oh, wait, worry you, so you, much. You're saying about, you should have it just, you know, extracting value and bonuses, right now. Right. And not, that I should have done both is what I said. I, I did increase when, my salary and bonus structure. What were you paying yourself? I did not to pull money was, out I mean, of we business, paid 50 grand right? a year. And that was a mistake. Well, I mean, no, probably more than that by, by then, but early on. Yeah. I mean, should for the first three years, I was paying myself nothing. Then I think I started paying myself 50 grand, you know, and it just sort of, if you, if you dollar cost averaged back, you know, it would have been a, a very bad financial decision, right. On a, on a, on an hourly basis. Um, but you know, you get there and, and, uh, and I make, you know, a good living today. That's, that's, that's plenty. Um, so, you know, it all evens out, but if you dollar cost average the first 10 years, I probably made 50 grand a year, you know, which, which after, 14 years and as an Navy SEAL with Stanford where, MBA, right? Ain't killing yeah. <laughs> and, and living in San Francisco at the time. I, I fled the Mill Valley like everyone does eventually or to Marin, you know, but, but uh, yeah, I was oh, no living, shit. I'm know, in Glen Park. in the city, paying a mortgage up on Twin Peaks and, uh, and awesome. Oh, well that's, that's where I was. So I was right behind tower market. Glen Park was my, Glen Park was my, my, my regular, you know, the Chenery restaurant. I, I was still down. There, I live that in, was my, my regular jam down the hill. And, you know, I, I used to run Glen Canyon every day. Yep. I live in downtown Glen Park. I uh, ran Glen Canyon today and I have a house here with like a, a garage and a gym with my TRX. Um, this is awesome, man. You're cool as shit. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, uh, right what's on. Your preferred method of, uh, what's your preferred method of uh, uh, chatting with people? Twitter? 
Well, my so uh, my social handles at Randy Hetrick, right? Instagram, Instagram, and uh, and Facebook at TRX Training is is the brand, um, and trxtraining.com is is obviously our website. Uh, I'm working on a, a randyhetrick.com website right now, where where some of my stuff that you know my next big big vision is to to take a page out of Richard Branson's you know handbook and and basically figure out ways to grow my my brand that can help the brand that I gave birth to do things that maybe it can't do and vice versa, right? You ladder yourselves up just like he's done with Virgin and the Richard Branson brand. That's, that's you know, sort of a goal that I have. Maybe, you know, I'd, I'd be wildly fortunate to get to his scale, but I could I could be happy with a lot less than that scale as long as I'm still contributing well, value I, to I, I the mothership you, uh, you, and it's giving look, me you, opportunities. You have the, cool the story, you have the look, you have the charisma, Navy SEAL who's fit and also went to Stanford. I mean, you're a, you, you, you have it, man. You got the it factor. So I... Uh, yeah, well, well, and uh, that's okay. Yeah, there are yeah, days when it feels does. like that, and um, then there are the other days. The this is sick. Um, thank you.